This is Bias Bender, and I'm Kayla Stokes. Welcome to the fifth episode of this podcast where we're investigating the stories of Black women from the past and the present in order to imagine the future. This week's episode is about Charlotte E. Ray and law school. All right, here we are. I can't believe it's already been a month since I launched this podcast. This is the fifth episode, and I'm feeling so excited about all the support so far. So let's jump in and keep going. So I don't know about anyone else, but this September crept up on me so quickly. I swear it was just the middle of August, but suddenly we are securely in the falls approaching and school is inevitable part of the year. This week, I thought it would be a good time to delve into another story centered around education, but this time specifically law school. As my mom can attest, I have always been a fan of contracts. (laughs) Ever since I could make a Word doc, I have been putting together written agreements. At first, it was a hand-me-down contract that ensured I wouldn't have to take any clothes from my older sister that I didn't like. But as time went on, I learned to appreciate a well-written agreement when I started having to review and negotiate my own once I began dipping my feet into working professionally in the theater world. So, hey, maybe one day I'll end up going to law school. But for now, I am excited to look into where black women fit into the history of practicing law in the U.S. So today, we are going to focus in on the story of Charlotte E. Ray. Charlotte was born on January 13th in 1850 in New York City. When I looked up what was going on in 1850, I found out that New York City was the biggest city population-wise, with the census counting over 515,000 residents. I also found out that Millard Fillmore was sworn into office as the president of the U.S. after President Zachary Taylor died that year. And we can't forget about the Compromise of 1850. Basically, this was the grand decision about whether or not to allow slavery in the land acquired through the Mexican War. So, California was to be a free state, but Utah and New Mexico would be decided upon by popular vote. This decision also included a very strict Fugitive Slave Act, which legalized and supported the practice of returning people who were running away from enslavement across state lines to their captors. So yeah, it wasn't exactly a cheerful year in history, but we got Charlotte out of it, so that's a win. Charlotte was born into a pretty affluent family. She was one of seven kids in her family. Her mother was Charlotte Augusta Burroughs Ray, and her father was Charles Bennett Ray. Her father Charles was a very active man in his community. He was a journalist and editor at Colored American, a popular black magazine, and he was also a pastor and activist. He was dedicated to helping his community by serving as a conductor on the Underground Railroad. Knowing about the Fugitive Slave Act makes me respect his efforts all the more because of all the danger he was facing by helping enslaved folks escape. So, Charlotte grew up with an expectation of helping others and helping herself. Her parents were dedicated to making sure all of their children received an education. Looking back on the women we've already talked about, it seems that all of them share the trait of having education valued in the family. Definitely makes a lot of sense. All of the Ray daughters, including Charlotte, went to the Institution for the Education of Colored Youth in Washington, D.C. This school was started by Myrtilla Minor and was specifically meant to educate young black girls and women past their primary education. Since the school was founded in the middle of the 1800s in a place where slavery was still legal, 
Miner faced a lot of opposition to opening her school. I wanted to read you a bit about what the D.C. mayor at the time thought about the idea of education for black people. Walter Lennox argued specifically against the school by saying that it was not humane to the colored population for us to permit a degree of instruction so far beyond their political and social condition. With this superior education, there will come no removal of the present disabilities, no new sources of employment equal to their mental culture, and hence there will be a restless population, less disposed than ever to fill that position in society which is allotted to them. So, in his opinion, black people didn't deserve a higher education because what on earth would they do with it? Luckily, while a lot of people thought his ideas made sense, not everyone agreed with him. The school was funded by a large variety of folks who stood by the access to education for everyone. And Charlotte was able to benefit from that generosity. By 1869, she had completed her studies, and because of the main curriculum of the school, she was qualified to teach. After graduation, Charlotte began working as a teacher at the newly founded Howard University. Alright, so in order to give context to Charlotte's time at Howard, we definitely have to talk about why it was founded and the history behind HBCUs. So, to back up, HBCU stands for Historically Black Colleges and Universities. The acronym kind of says it all. But for the sake of over-explaining, the Higher Education Act of 1965, as amended, defines an HBCU as any historically black college or university that was established prior to 1964, whose principal mission was, and is, the education of black Americans, and that is accredited by a nationally recognized accrediting agency or association determined by the Secretary of Education to be a reliable authority as to the quality of training offered or is, according to such an agency or association, making reasonable progress towards accreditation. So, HBCUs are defined by their long-standing dedication towards educating Black people. And they came out of a necessity. Black folks definitely couldn't rely on attending highly segregated institutions for higher learning, so in order to achieve more education, they needed colleges and universities that were dedicated to them. Each institution that came about has a rich history of serving as a cornerstone of possibility for black folks looking for a higher education. Of course, you don't have to be black to attend, but if you look on their campuses to this day, you'll typically see mostly black populations of students. There are 107 HBCUs across the country today, split around half and half private and public. Okay, so Howard specifically was originally founded as a school dedicated to teaching theology to black men wanting to pursue preaching, but it quickly expanded to a mission much greater. Within its first few years of operation, Howard University expanded into a liberal arts college and law school. As the years went on, it has grown and grown, and at this point, it boasts being the largest gathering place of black scholars in the world. To date, it has produced the most black PhDs in the world, and when we think about black changemakers and notable figures, many of them spent time working on a degree at Howard. Just a few examples include vice presidential candidate Kamala Harris, Toni Morrison, P. Diddy, Amiri Baraka, Stokely Carmichael, Thurgood Marshall, and of course, the late, great Chadwick Boseman. The list goes on and on and on, but as we can see from the beginning, Howard was working hard to meet the educational needs of a population hungry for knowledge. 
And that is the school Charlotte began her adult life working in. She worked as a teacher in the university's normal and preparatory department. The cool part about many of the early HBCUs is that they also worked to educate on a pre-college level. So that is where Charlotte began teaching, but she quickly set her sights on Howard's Law School. The details on Charlotte's time attending law school are a bit murky, to be honest. I've read some accounts that she got into law school on the basis of the school's non-discrimination policy, but I've also read a few accounts that she used her initials C.E. Ray when applying as to neutralize her gender, but at the same time, I've read about black professionals using their initials in order to be addressed appropriately instead of by their first name, so... I'm not exactly sure what her path to law school was like, or what it was like for her attending law school as a black woman in the 1800s. But I do know that she did well, because the president of Howard, General Howard himself, remarked in his annual report that he was surprised to find a colored woman who read us a thesis on corporations, not copied from books, but from her brain, a clear, incisive analysis of one of the most delicate legal questions. So, Charlotte held her own, to say the least, and graduated in 1872 with a law degree. And she passed the bar in Washington, D.C., making her the first documented black woman to become a practicing lawyer in the U.S. So, in the same year that Susan B. Anthony was arrested for illegally voting as a woman, and the patent for a wireless telegraph that would lead to the invention of the telephone was obtained by Milan Loomis... Charlotte Ray was making history in her own right. And just like that, Charlotte's law career began. It was clear that she wanted to engage in commercial law when she started her own law practice in D.C. However, it wasn't an easy career for her. She had a hard time gaining trust from folks, as they definitely weren't used to seeing a female lawyer, let alone a black female lawyer. I wasn't able to get too much information on her actual practice, but we do have evidence that she did practice law. In 1875, she petitioned the Supreme Court of D.C. in order to grant Martha Gadley a divorce from her abusive husband. Martha had tried to go to court in order to get a divorce, but being an illiterate black woman in the 1800s, she lost her case. However, with the help of Charlotte Ray's powerful petition, Martha was able to appeal her case and win, and in doing so, she was able to get on with her life. And that incredibly important case is all I could really find on Charlotte's law career. It seems as though she had a tough time gaining clients. By the end of the 1870s, Charlotte returned to teaching, but this time in the public schools of Brooklyn, where two of her sisters were also employed. But she also kept active in the suffrage movement and attended the National Women's Suffrage Association's annual convention in New York City and served as an active member of the National Association of Colored Women. And that is the story of Charlotte E. Ray. It definitely makes me wonder if she knew how important her life and story is. I did find that the Greater Washington Area Chapter of the Women Lawyers Division of the American Bar Association named an award after her, but... I don't think she lived to see very much acclaim at all. So I'm glad to be sharing her story with you now because it definitely deserves more attention. It can be incredibly intimidating to do something when no one else who looks like you is doing it. I know that from my own experience, but there can't be a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth without the first. So I'm really grateful for Charlotte for being brave enough to be the first.
And because of her, we're able to see all the women who get to continue on in her footsteps and make even more progress. For example, I'm talking today with Sabrina Matlock, who is currently in law school as we speak. So I always knew I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, uh, at PDS, at Princeton Day School, I sort of was drawn to a lot of the law kind of classes. We had a class called Law and Democracy, and we learned about the civil rights movement in the context of the law. And so I sort of gravitated to more law-based um, classes and talked to my teacher and was like, you know, what? how can I do more of this? How can I learn more about this? Um, and he, you know, talked about, like, what it would be like to be a lawyer and sort of the legal profession. Um, and so I went to college with a more or less pre-law um, major and got to talk a lot about, like, gender in the law and different intersectionalities um, that the law has with a lot of social issues. Um, and that's sort of where I found my passion to want to be a public defender or just do public interest work generally. Um, just realizing that a lot of the social issues that I was seeing in the media and on the news, I could actually kind of get involved with and actually have some sort of impact um, on. So I knew I wanted to go to law school. I couldn't see myself doing any other job. (laughs) So I, and I really had no other passion (laughs) except for criminal justice and prison reform mainly. Um, and I didn't want to go into the politics and be a legislator. Um, and so I said, well, if I can affect change prior to prison, like if I can defend someone and get them a lower sentence or just affect the change before they enter prison, then that's me at least making some impact in prison um, reform in, in, a, in a very small way. Um, so I went to American University and then... I went straight through because, again, didn't know what I wanted to do other than be a lawyer. Um, I only knew that, and I could only do that with a law degree. So I applied to law school. That process was insane. (laughs) Um, And I ended up at Washington Lee um, School of Law in Lexington, Virginia. So now that you're there, what would you say is the most challenging part of going to law school I feel like the first year and the second year are very different so there's like two different set of challenges um in those two years I guess the first year the first challenge is just getting yourself acquainted to law school life and just moving to a new city for me it took a little while to even get used to being away from DC just as it took a little while to be away from New Jersey when I went to college so took a little time to get used to like being in a very rural town after coming from a city and then you know trying to make friends and sort of feel comfortable then came all of the work that I was not accustomed to in undergrad where it's very heavy reading and just sort of you know the synthesis that they want you to do so quickly is something you just have to learn. Like, they throw you in, you know, they do a little orientation, but you're thrown right in, and it's it's very different. So 
just that challenge of the academic curve and trying to figure out how how do I study best because it's not like undergrad um so trying to find how I studied best was a challenge and um especially with classes that I felt like they're fundamental classes like it's a lot of foundational classes but you know I didn't really find a passion in those whereas this year my second year I got to choose my classes and so I'm a little more invested and the reading is more interesting um, and the discussion in class is more interesting. So I'm a little more um, engaged and I feel like this is definitely a better year academically. Um, But the second year has its own challenges because this is when you can get involved, super involved with extracurricular activities. But then that adds in the busyness um, (laughs) because, um, you know, you're just trying to you you know you feel like you have a grasp on the academics but adding in you know being the president of an organization and doing like a bunch of other stuff is hard to then be like yeah like you know I can do every single thing um, so right. it's just you know trying to manage time becomes super important and is somewhat of a challenge you know trying to keep your mental health in- intact for the second year mm-hmm. um, also trying to look for a job because your second year summer, you know, is sort of like gearing up. Like that's your last summer in law, like law school, because your third summer you're done. Um, so that job is pretty important too. So there's like a lot sort of going on all at once your second year. So like each year just gets more and more challenging. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so on the other side of that, um, what would you say brings you the most sense of joy or sense of accomplishment um, with being in law school? I would say that um, networking with professors who are doing kind of what I want to do um, or are just good resources to have just in my academic life. Um, Additionally, I was on um, the Black Law Student Association's mock trial team last year, and we... And the, that organization is the only one that allows first-year students to be um, able to compete in mock trial, and our team went to nationals. So just, wow. like, that accomplishment. Yeah, and just, like, feeling like, you know, I think law school gives you sort of a self-doubt check where you kind of go in and you, you know, either you're going to feel like you're adequate and you're going to do great, um, or you sort of doubt yourself and you have imposter syndrome where you're like, you know, I'm, you know, not up to par with my colleagues and you sort of get down on yourself in that way. But, you know, going to that competition and winning and getting all the way to the national competition was a little bit of like a reassurance that working in the courtroom, not only is it something that I'm passionate about, but something that I am actually good at. Um, because I think those are two different things for me, at least I'm, I'm very hyper aware of the fact that you can be passionate, like, at least for me, I can be passionate about something, but you know, that only goes far so far if you're not good at it. Um, and so I'm like very aware of like, okay, I want to be a lawyer, but am I going to be any good? And so just having the, like, to reaffirm that, like, you know, this is my passion and I'm, you know, going to be good at it and I will be someone's lawyer and I'll be a someone's like effective lawyer um was just very amazing just that whole experience um as nerve-wracking as it was to stand up there in front of the judge and 
do a fake case, um, it was very exciting and very rewarding. Um, another thing I would say is also just the connections that you make with stu- like my fellow students, like um, especially the second year, all of my friendships have definitely been solidified. And so knowing that these are going to be the people in whatever they do are going to be the people that I can, you know, check in with, reach out to, um, you know, if I'm ever down out of luck and don't have a job, you know, they can help me and same goes, you know, if they're ever out of, out of a job. Um, so just knowing that I'm going to have like a network of lawyers after I leave, um, is very exciting and very, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's hard to believe that this is the dream that I had ever since I was a kid and it's materializing right in front of my eyes. So yeah, it sounds incredible. I'm so glad. Like, I feel like, I don't know, we grew up next to each other and it's so even like reassuring to hear that you're like, you're doing it. You're, um, you're on your way. And like, (laughs) I'm so glad that you found the place where you feel like you should be. Yeah. Cause even when I was at PDS, like Grace and other people can tell you, I would always be like, I want to be a lawyer. And when you're 14, 15 years old, you're like, okay, yeah, sure. Because you <laughs> yeah. don't know what the next five years, six years are going to be. Um, but just knowing, you know, I think that even showed my, me, myself, that I have the drive. Like, if I set my mind to something, I actually can follow through. So then, thinking even further into the future, um, <laughs> if you can <laughs> <Right>. do that, <laughs> um, what are your I, I know you touched on this a little bit but like what are your hopes for that post-grad life and like what are you dreaming about doing with your law degree so currently I'm looking into well okay so right now I'm looking into a like law firm job for my second year summer because I think the reality of law school and also just life in general is that when you do have a graduate degree that comes with a financial burden um that has to be taken care of because public interest law does not pay well and that's the type of law that honestly is the one that's most beneficial to the common person because you know when you know you get a speeding ticket or you have something where it's like a mandatory appearance in court and you're facing a decent sentence you know, you're going to need a public defender. So that's impacting people on the day-to-day. And that just doesn't pay the bills for the lawyer who's representing representing you. So I'm looking into post-grad doing a firm job, whether that's a medium-sized or large-sized firm, for five to seven years to pay off loans, get myself, like, in a position financially to be able to you know, live a decent life, especially because I want to end up in D.C. The like the standard of living there is very high. Like the cost of living is so high there. Mm-hmm. So you need to have a job that'll at least give you rent and groceries. Right. Um, and then I was talking to one of my professors who did do big law, and she was saying that she did a lot of pro bono work on the side where she was doing criminal cases, divorce cases, battered women cases. Like there's the work that I want to do is still out there, even in that big law firm arena where I can do it on the side. So, you know, I'm happy that that's an an option for me. Um, But after that five to seven years, I see myself being either a private criminal defense attorney or um, being a public defender because I just, 
seeing the news, seeing and like hearing stories and knowing just how essential a public defender is for people who can't afford an actual lawyer, it just sort of reaffirms my my passion that I had when I was younger that like, wait, these people can't get an attorney because they don't have money and a lot of times public defenders have a hundred cases per day. You know, and it's like wow. if we can at yeah. least bolster, you know, if we can get more public defenders, I mean, you know, eventually, like, you know, more cases happen every day, but if we just are adding more public defenders to the job or, like, you know, pro bono, you know, doing, taking as many cases as you can, it hopefully will lessen the load a little bit on some of the public defenders. So that's just been my dream. I want to litigate. I want to be in the courtroom um, in whatever way that materializes, but the goal is to do law firm five to seven years and then finish out um, being a public defender or honestly even retiring as a judge. That was one thing I even thought about. Wow, like, yeah. You know, like far in advance, like like when I'm at the end of my career, what do I want to do? Because I don't think I'll just want to like stay home. I think, you know, you, you see those old judges on the bench who are just like going in for a few hours and, you know, that's sort of the long, long term goal. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I have just one more question. Um, I'm just curious, uh, cause you know, I'm sure you're learning so much information all the time, but, um, I was just wondering if you had any, any cool or surprising thing you've recently learned, um, that made you, I don't know, stop and think. So I'm in a class called criminal procedure investigation. So we basically are learning about like what the police are allowed to do when investigating a crime. Um, we're learning a lot about like searches and seizures and um, just put like putting what I'm learning into the context of um, like what I'm seeing in the news. So like Breonna Taylor's case, mm-hmm. we and the Richard Richard Brooks case. Uh, we kind of talked about that and realizing that. The, the sad reality is that the no-knock warrant has its benefits. Um, and in Breonna Taylor's case, basically they had the wrong house and basically the officers are allowed, unless it's a reasonable like time, like they, in, within a reason, they are allowed to you know go about whatever business that they had given a warrant. If they had the no-knock warrant, they were allowed to knock and enter the home. Um, or no, they didn't knock, but they were allowed to enter the home without knocking, like reasonably and legally. Right. But as soon as they knew they were at the wrong house, they were supposed to stop the search and stop whatever they were doing. Um, and so just realizing like how, how much discretion we give the police officers to sort of like make sure they're doing the right thing and, you know, like it's just it's like it you you start to grapple with like what the media is telling you and then like what the legal basis is for a lot of these um police involved shootings because with Rashad Brooks we had a whole discussion about you know when is it when is an officer allowed to use excessive or deadly force when their life is at risk and you know like if you know, when can an officer shoot to, to wound or shoot to kill? 
Um, and we're having those conversations and it's just so wild that like, you know, the courts are having these conversations and making these, setting these precedents and it becomes almost, it, it detaches you from what is actually happening um, mm. in the day to day because Rashad Brooks, it was like he was fleeing um, and we had a case where a, a suspect was fleeing and there is a hot pursuit um, requirement that they are like police officers are allowed to um, pursue and search a fleeing suspect like they're allowed to like pursue them mm-hmm. um, and search upon like apprehending them but it's just like these things are so cut and dry in the law but when it actually happens in person it's just not that simple um, and I think that's where we're seeing the issues that the law gives one thing but then when it happens you know things are so nuanced in the real world that it becomes so messy um and harder to say okay well this officer had the you know could do this or that it's like well no because it didn't quite fit the facts of whatever the precedent or the law was so coming to that realization has been weird um yeah talk about yeah talk about these cases and I'm like yes they're awful but like some of them the officer was acting at least with Brianna Taylor's case they did have a no knock warrant so they were allowed to enter the home without knocking however it was the wrong house and two um you know it's just like they they shouldn't have just started shooting immediately you know what I mean like there's definitely issues of you know was the no knock warrant even you know acceptable in this case so there's always these different issues that come up um and it's so hard to talk about because someone's life was taken unjustly. So it's been it's been weird as a black woman, especially in these classes, sort of talking about these things, having the the burden of being a black woman and being affected by the death, but also being ha- having a lawyer mind and trying to reason and say, well, is there what were was there any justification at all? Um, so that's been kind of hard to balance. And being one of, like, three black students in the class, you know, having to talk about it, or sometimes we don't have to talk about it, so I feel obligated to talk about it, you know, just because it's like, I'd be remiss if we talk about no-knock warrants, and Breonna Taylor's name is not brought up once, you know? Right. So, that's been a new, a new, a new interesting thing that's you know, especially with classes that are more tailored to my interests. Um, yeah. I've noticed that, like, it's very relevant to what's going on in the world now. Mm-hmm. So. I'm so glad I could catch up with Sabrina as she navigates law school. It's pretty inspiring to know that from the time of Charlotte E. Ray until now, the presence of black female lawyers has only grown and grown and grown. And I'm awfully proud to know one of them. Oh, and here's one more thing from Sabrina. I would just say that I think everyone, if they are thinking about going, like anyone who is thinking about going to law school, as expensive as an endeavor as it is, (laughs) um, I recommend it. I think for all of the work and the way that you are taught and like the way that they make you think about things, it's an incredible benefit to your life. Um, Even if you don't like, you know, practice law, there's a lot of other jobs that you can do that you know, you need the degree for that just having the skills that you learn in law school, um, it's just beneficial to have. 
and the network of like black attorneys and just attorneys of color is even though we are a minority in the field it's it's still a very um strong and like proud like network like everyone that I've spoken to who's in law school who's black or um already a um attorney you know they're they're willing to reach out they're willing to help you um in any way that they can because they know what it was like when they went to law school and they were like the only black student or you know right whatever the case may be so you know I think we're all at least for me I know that you know when I actually do become a lawyer have a JD and, and practicing I'm going to definitely be reaching out as much as I can to help those who are you know just starting out because it's the field is so, like, it's dominated by white males, and, you know, we need more representation. Like, we need people to have lawyers that look like them. I use the following sources to research this week's episode. Special feature, Charlotte E. Ray Pleads Before Court by J. Clay Smith Jr. from the Howard Law Journal. History.com's article, Charlotte E. Ray's Brief but Historic Career as the First U.S. Black Woman Attorney by Erin Blakemore. Harris Beach's article on Charlotte E. Ray. Anne M. Hutchess's article for Oxford African American Studies Center on Charlotte E. Ray. Howard University's website, the Myrtilla Miller page on womenhistoryblog.com, and the U.S. Department of Education's page on historically black colleges and universities. Special thanks to Sabrina Matlock. And original music, as always, is by Adam Westerman.